I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. We are continuing this morning in our Christian Essentials series. This is number six of the Christian Essentials that we've been talking about the first Sunday of each month. When I think of essentials, I think of things that I cannot do without and you cannot do without. Food, water, air, sleep, shelter. All those things are essential when we speak about physical survival. If we turn to the realm of psychological needs, relationships, intimacy, a sense of belonging, meaningful work, those are essential for emotional health. When we consider the essentials of Christianity, we are referring to those things that are essential to believe. There are doctrines, as I pointed out, that are urgent doctrines. Urgent doctrines, like what you believe about baptism or the Lord's Supper. Uh, these are beliefs in this urgent category that tend to divide Christians into different denominations. Urgent does not mean essential. I can disagree with a brother or sister on the timing or the, the mode or the method of baptism, and they are still a Christian brother or sister. But if we disagree on whether or not Jesus is fully God and fully man, which he is, this is more than a disagreement over an interpretation. Doubting whether Jesus is fully God or fully man strikes at the gospel itself. Jesus had to be both in order to live the life that you could not live and die the death that you deserve to die for his sacrifice to be accepted on your behalf and on my behalf. And this is an example of what we mean by an essential. They are essential beliefs because they relate to salvation, to how an individual is reconciled to God. So you and I can disagree on baptism or when Jesus will return or a whole host of other issues and both still be within the fold of Christianity. The essentials, however, are those core beliefs that define Christianity. They relate directly to faith in Christ. There are different ideas about how many Christian essentials there are. Uh, the list is anywhere from five to, to eight, typically, depending on how you word these doctrines. The core beliefs are all there, but sometimes they're divided up differently. They're combined differently. I'm working from a list of seven. Again, we're on number six. And today's essential belief is the church as the redeemed in Christ. A simpler yet wordier way to say that is the church defined by Scripture as those who have been redeemed by God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're going to take as our text this morning as Ephesians chapter 2, as we look at the church together. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. I'll read through verse 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever been sitting in a church and, and looked around? I mean, really looked around at the people that are surrounding you. There are probably some with which you have a few things in common. A close friend or two might attend. But think about, as you reflect on that question, what brought us together? Why are you here this morning? How different, if you think about it, are many of the people sitting around you? And yet, we're here, and in the midst of our efforts week after week to, to sing and to pray and to listen together, God is with us. I mean, how else can you explain showing up here other than something miraculous is at work? God is at work. Just a cursory read through the New Testament will tell you how near and how dear the church is to the heart of God. If you're a Christian, therefore, the church should be near and dear to you as well. It is, it is spiritually unhealthy. It is ultimately detrimental for a Christian to remain disconnected from other Christians. And the context of this connectivity is the local church. We, we must understand the importance of the local fellowship of believers to God's plan for each of our lives. And so we're going to ask and answer from this passage three questions. First of all, to whom does the church belong? Secondly, on whom is the church established? And thirdly, who dwells in the church? So first of all, to whom does the church belong? The answer, the church is the Father's family. Verse 19, Ephesians 2, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. What do you think of when you hear the word church? Maybe a particular building comes to mind. Uh, maybe you think of a certain group of people or a particular denomination. Perhaps you think of all of those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus in faith. If the latter is the case, that is an excellent starting point. We need to understand the church at a, at a macro level so we can understand it at a, at a micro level. We need, first of all, this panoramic view, then the telescopic view. If you are a Christian, you are no longer a stranger or an alien. Before you were in the state that every human being is born into, spiritually dead to God, relationally separated from Him. The sin nature that you inherited and I inherited from the first man, from Adam, ensured that we would be inclined toward disobedience instead of obedience. And for that reason, you and I, we've chosen to think and to say and to do things that are displeasing to God, displeasing to the one who created us, the one who loves us, and the Bible calls this sin. Now, the Lord provided in the Old Testament a way for Israelites 
to be in fellowship with him. The Old Testament describes how an Israelite was required to make animal sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem and to follow the law of Moses. If a Gentile, that is a non-Israelite, a non-Jew, wanted to be received by the God of Israel, he had to receive circumcision. He had to convert to Judaism. He had to keep the law. Otherwise, he or she was a stranger and alien, not a beneficiary of the favor of God. But what Paul does in chapter 2 of Ephesians, leading up to verse 19, he spends time showing how God's purpose was always to provide a way for all humanity, Jew and Gentile, to come to him. So in verse 18, he writes, Through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. That is through Jesus Christ, through faith in him, Jew and Gentile are brought near to God. And the Bible calls this redemption. When you redeem something, you gain possession of it. That's what the word means. God receives people to himself. He gains possession of people through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus chose to be separated from God in death so that you no longer have to be estranged and alienated from the Father. Here's the point. Everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, who has experienced his converting power in their life, is included in the church. If you are no longer separated from God, then you are no longer his enemy. In fact, you are his child. You are of God's household. That is familial language. It's the language of a family. And so when the New Testament speaks of the church, in the broadest sense, it means every single Christian. There is no option in the Bible to be a Christian and not be a member of the church. God's church is God's family. And as a Christian, you're a family member, like it or not. Some people have this attitude, I love Jesus, but I don't care so much for his church. I get that. The church does not always represent her Lord very well. But Jesus does not distance himself from his church, so neither should you. From this truth that, that every Christian is a part of the church, we understand an important distinction. The church is both universal and local. God's household refers to every Christian everywhere, the universal church. But we also know from many other places in the New Testament that the church is local. Paul is writing in Ephesians to the church that's in a place called Ephesus. Every physical gathering of believers in a certain location is a church. Maybe this is Christianity 101 this morning, but it's good to be reminded of it. It is not the place that Christians gather that is a church. It is the people that gather who are the church. You are of God's household. So whether the Christians are a small group gathering in a living room or a few thousand meeting in an auditorium, when either of those groups are together, both are expressions of the church. Both are 
a church. The size of the group of Christians doesn't matter. But when believers gather together for worship, since we are physical beings, we have physical bodies, we have to do so in an actual place. This is the local church. This is the local church, that gathering of Christians. Every local church is a small part of the universal church. The universal church, again, includes every Christian. And if you have experienced the second birth, the new birth, you are part of the universal church. You might not attend anywhere. That's not the case for anybody in this room. You might not, or you might have gone through a season in your life where you did not fellowship with other Christians. Nevertheless, you still were included in the church. Every local church is a physical expression of the universal church composed of every Christian. So there is no location where every believer on earth can gather together. We must have these local physical churches in order to express the reality of the universal church. I realize the word church is not found in our text this morning, but the church is obviously what Paul has in mind. The word that we translate church in English, the English word church, is translated from the Greek word ecclesia. Ecclesia. The word ecclesia was already in common use. It meant an assembly called out by the magistrate of a city or a town. So anytime some legitimate authority, a governor, a mayor, a representative, called people together for a public gathering, it was an ecclesia. And the apostles, they, they used this common word to describe the people of God. We are called out and we are brought together. Called out to be brought together. This phrase in verse 19, Ephesians 2, you are fellow citizens with the saints, gives us the sense of being called out of something. A Christian's been transferred from one kingdom to another. Colossians 1.13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. This is a spiritual transfer. You are no longer a citizen of the kingdom of darkness under the authority of the adversary. You are called out of that realm and placed into a new realm under a new authority. The kingdom of God. A Christian is a citizen of a different kingdom under a different authority and we are brought together to express God's rule and reign. And that happens in and through our lives. And we do that together as the church, the called out ones. Let's consider what it means that we are of God's household. The father is the head of the home. The head of the household is the protector and the provider. He is the one upon whom the members of the household depend. In the Bible, one's household included everyone who lived under the same roof. I saw this a lot in Nigeria. Living under one thatched roof, sometimes in one room, there would be more than just a nuclear family, more than just mom, dad, and children. There would also be aunts, uncles, possibly cousins, even close friends and orphans who had been taken in to that household. 
and all were considered part of the family. To be part of God's household means he has brought you into his family. This is the language of intimacy. This is a relational language. As such, you have all the privileges of a son or a daughter, but you also have responsibilities. Paul uses two pictures together here to help us understand. One is of a citizen. You are fellow citizens. Remember how, as we've been looking at an Acts, Paul was a Roman citizen. And therefore, he had all the rights that go along with that. He could not be punished without a trial and a guilty verdict. He was protected. That was a privilege. But he also had responsibilities as a citizen. And one of those responsibilities was to behave in such a way that he honored Roman law. Privileges, responsibilities. When you become a Christian, you become a member of a new household. You have privileges, including most of all access to the Father, as well as his provision and his protection. You also have responsibilities, which include submission to the head of the household. You owe obedience to the one who has rescued you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of light. A child who obeys her father out of fear does so, why? Well, does so to avoid punishment, does so to avoid anger or the wrath of the father. As a member of God's household, the wrath you deserve has already been poured out on Jesus. Now, you are only a recipient of God's love. You're not obeying out of fear. You're obeying out of gratitude to the one who loves you and who has brought you into his family, who has brought you into his household, who is providing for you, who is protecting you. But of course, this love includes discipline. But remember, discipline is never punishment for the believer. Jesus has already been punished for the believer. Discipline in God's household is always corrective. As Hebrews 12.10 says, Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He, God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. As a member of God's household, the Father provides for you and confers upon you all the privileges of sonship. You've been adopted into the family. You've been conferred the same status as Jesus Christ. But here's the thing to keep in mind. You are not an only child. God never intended for you or me to live in his household alone. You have brothers and sisters. The church is your family. More than just the Christians, even in our local congregation, Every believer in Jesus Christ is your sibling. I remind us of that every Sunday when I pray for the other churches in this area. Some of your brothers and sisters, they are different than you are. You probably noticed that. Some of them are quirky. Some of them are exasperating. They all have issues. You and I bring our issues along too. Yet God has seen fit to bring you, and me, and every other Christian into his household, the church. We need one another. We are obligated to one another. 
We cannot accomplish the purposes of God without one another. Not only are we no longer strangers and aliens to God, we are no longer strangers and aliens to one another. The church is the only collection of human beings in the universe, wherein so many different people from so many different backgrounds and experiences and possessing different personalities are brought together in cooperation toward a common goal and brought together for genuine fellowship. It should not work. In fact, it would not work. Except that the church is a spiritual phenomenon. It's held together by supernatural love. We're able to love one another because God first loved us. It doesn't make any sort of sense that we should stick together. We're so different. But we do so because we are of God's household. We're family. God keeps his own and he keeps us together. Usually in a family, there's that one person, maybe it's a granddad or maybe it's a grandma. That one person of which it said, he kept the family together. She kept the family together. Because of him, we would get together on, for holidays. But since he's passed away or she's passed away, everyone in the family has been at each other's throats. God keeps his family together. The church is the father's family. Secondly, on whom is the church established? Answer, the church is built on Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets were those specific first century Christians who spoke and wrote the word of God as revealed directly to them by the Holy Spirit. The apostles, like Paul, like Peter, they spoke and wrote authoritatively what was written down by them and by others in letters like Ephesians or like 1 Peter became our New Testament. Prophets confirmed the words of the apostles. And on the basis of what these apostles and prophets wrote and spoke, we received the word of God. Though others might operate as apostles today, think uh, missionaries planting churches, and some today might speak prophetically, and we've talked about this, in the sense of speaking into the moment what the Lord brings to mind, there are no longer apostles and prophets who are given new revelation from God. We know this because the foundation is finished. It says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You can only build on a foundation if that foundation is complete. You don't pour the foundation after you put the walls up, put the roof on. God's revelation about the nature of the church is complete. We have it right here. Verse 20 is not saying the men, the apostles and the prophets themselves are the foundation. It's not the men that are the foundation. Rather, it is that the apostles and prophets laid the foundation. Their words, what we call the New Testament, which itself flows out of the Old Testament, is what the church is built upon. 
We know about the church because the word of God tells us about it. All of this structural language, built, building, cornerstone, what does it bring to mind? It brings to mind things that are physical. And this is probably one reason why people so often confuse the church with the church building. Just remember, Paul employs this physical language to try to describe something that is not physical. The people that make up the church, we're physical, obviously, but the church itself is spiritual. Since you can't see with your physical eyes spiritual realities, we have to use word pictures to describe them. And the picture Paul paints, I'm sure you're catching at this point, the picture that Paul paints is that of a temple. Temples in the ancient world, they were everywhere. They were in every major city. They were in a lot of small towns. There were large temples, and there were small temples. There were temples to various gods, lowercase g. And of course, there was a temple to the true God, the creator of heaven and earth in Jerusalem. What is a temple? Well, we think of it as a place where something is worshipped. The ancient Jew and Gentile both viewed a temple as where the God being worshipped chose to dwell. It was the house of the God. Every temple, every stone structure was built on a foundation. And at one corner of this structure was the cornerstone. It was at the corner. Everything depended on the cornerstone. It had to be laid precisely. Every other block in the building was laid according to the placement of the cornerstone. It determined whether or not the building would be level. The cornerstone, it oriented the structure. It was also the stone on which every other stone was ultimately tied into. Those of you who build understand this. If the cornerstone was crooked or weak, the whole building was compromised. It would not be sturdy. It would not be strong. Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone of the church. So first of all, because he is the cornerstone, upon him everything is oriented. Without the death of Jesus, there would be no church. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus died a death that he should not have died so that we would not have to die eternally the death that we should die. And because he received the judgment of God upon himself at the cross, you and I can receive the acceptance of God through faith in him. Jesus died to bring us to the Father again. Ephesians 2.18 For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. We are of God's household. We're recipients of his love. We're used for his purposes because Jesus shed his blood to cover the sins of all who call upon his name in faith. The church is reconciled to the Father. Without the death of Jesus, there would be no church. But also, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there would be no church. Remember, he's the cornerstone. He orients the church. 
Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. That's John 11.25. If Jesus only died for sins, but did not rise into new life, then he could not give life to his people. The resurrection is life. And Jesus fills every person who believes in him with his life. The church, therefore, is not just a gathering of like-minded people. The church is not a bowling club. The church is not the Rotary Club. The church is not even a, a Bible study group. The church is a living organism. It is a body. It is filled with the resurrected life of the Lord Jesus, pumping through its veins. Ephesians 5.29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. The church is Christ's own flesh. The fact that we as a church have the very resurrected life of Jesus flowing within us means that meeting together for worship is life-giving. One of the reasons that you and I are strengthened and encouraged by fellowship together is because when we do gather together, there is this opportunity for resurrection life to flow from the head, Jesus Christ, into the body. His people gathered for worship, meeting on Sunday mornings or any other time. It's not just something we do because we think we're supposed to. Meeting together, it opens the floodgates of spiritual life to flow from the head into all the members. Jesus is alive in every Christian, but the fullest expression of his life occurs when we come together. Even here at Salem. Jesus is the orienting cornerstone. We always find our reference point in him. Without him, there would be no point to meet together. Secondly, as the cornerstone, Jesus gives the structure stability. If the cornerstone is laid properly, the building is going to rise on stable footing. It's going to endure. The elements are not going to easily wear it down. The storms are not going to easily topple it. If the foundation of the church is God's word, then the cornerstone, the stabilizer, is the one to whom all of God's word points. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. So just as the cornerstone is the stone that, that binds all the other stones together, so Jesus is the one who makes sense of the scriptures. It is through him that we understand the plan of God, that plan to redeem people who exercise faith. It is through Jesus that we understand how the church came into existence, who is in charge, how it functions, what it is working toward. And I want you to hear this. To the degree that any one church keeps Jesus Christ as the center, as the focus, to that degree will the church be spiritually stable. I think all of you understand, I mentioned this earlier, 
that if there's a group that denies either the full humanity or the full divinity of Jesus, that group is not a biblical church. They might claim to be Christians. They might read the Bible. They might use Christian terms, but they're not a church. This is the case with cult groups like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. They both use the Bible. You might have noticed that. And they both deny the full deity of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, there are a number of churches who believe rightly about who the Bible says Jesus is, but they do not keep Jesus as the focus of their lives or of their worship gatherings. What do I mean by that? Well, they make a certain issue their focus. There are many issues, many truths that we should teach and promote. But that one thing, that one thing, no matter how true and necessary it might be, cannot be the center. It cannot be the cornerstone. Some Christian churches put too much emphasis on spiritual gifts. That's their focus. You go into that church, that church building, what do you leave thinking about? Spiritual gifts. Other churches, too much emphasis on the outward appearance, as in a certain dress code for their members. Maybe that's directly proclaimed or maybe it's just implied. Some put too much emphasis on what activities you can do or what activities you can't do. Others focus so much on doctrinal precision, they neglect to show love to those whom they disagree. To those with whom they disagree. Now, doctrinal precision is very important, but so is love. Some churches make evangelism everything. Some, activism. Do not mishear me. Everything I just mentioned has its proper place. Spiritual gifts, modesty, behavior, doctrine, evangelism, good works and service to others, and many more. But none of these things can be the cornerstone, can be the center, can be the focus. None of those things will ultimately stabilize the church. Only Jesus Christ can do that. He must be the center of our worship. He must be the center of our fellowship. He must be the one from whom and to whom all teaching flows. You can tell a lot about the spiritual health of a church by how much they talk about, are excited about, and focus on Jesus Christ. He gives the church spiritual stability. In him, verse 21, the whole building is fitted together. Third question, who dwells in the church? Who dwells in the church? Answer, the church is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We've already seen the church belongs to God. You're a part of his family. The church is built on Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. And in verse 21, we encounter this phrase about the church. It is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Up until 
the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. We saw that back in Acts chapter 2, if you can remember that far back. Up until that time, there was only one holy temple, and it was in Jerusalem. There were multiple temples all over the world to false gods, but there was only one temple to the true God. The temple, it was not only the place where the Israelites worshipped God, it was also the political and the social and the cultural center of the nation. It was the place of celebration. It was the place of feasting. The temple in Jerusalem was, in reality, the place where heaven met earth. It was the place where God caused His presence to dwell. It was holy because it was the space where the Spirit of God chose to inhabit. It was the place where God made His presence known. The temple was where heaven met earth. It was where deity met humanity. When the Son of God was born as a human and grew into a man, the Spirit of God took up His residence in Him. At Jesus' baptism, what happened? The Spirit descended on Him as a dove, lighting on Him, dwelling in Him. And this is why Jesus said in John 2.19, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John makes the comment that Jesus was speaking of the temple of His body. Catch that. No longer would the Spirit of God dwell in a structure. He now lived in a man. That man, Jesus, he perfectly followed the leading of the Holy Spirit within him. He obeyed where we failed to. And he even followed where his soul did not want to go, namely the cross. When Jesus died, he was separated for a season a season in time from the presence of God. He was cut off from the Holy Spirit, but it was the Spirit who brought him back to life. That's Romans 8, 11, raising him from the dead. And so Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he died, John 16, 7, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 50 days after his resurrection, that was 10 days after his ascension. What did Jesus do? He sent the promised Holy Spirit. Acts 2.3, the Holy Spirit appeared to them as tongues of fire distributing themselves. What happened at that moment? Well, each individual believer received the Holy Spirit. He no longer dwells in one place in the temple in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit no longer dwells in one man, the Lord Jesus alone. He now resides in every single Christian. I'm going somewhere with this. I will send him to you. Each believer in Jesus Christ is a temple of God. Deity meets humanity in you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Your body is a temple of of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Even more than that, the church is now the temple. 2 Corinthians 6.16 states, we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. As a Christian, you are a temple. As the church, we are the temple. 
deity meets humanity most fully in the church. You might be tempted to think that the local church is, is not that big of a deal. You might wonder if the Lord could even use us to accomplish his grand, eternally reaching purposes. And the fact that you and I even wonder about this is the glory of the church. It's so improbable. It's so unimaginable. But there's no plan B. There's not a plan B. There's not a backup plan. The purpose of God to reconcile people to himself for all eternity is to do so through the local church. That's us. The purpose of God to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, that's Ephesians 4.15, the purpose of God is through the local church. God intends to use us. Buckle up. And this makes sense of verse 21. The whole building, the church, is composed of individual stones. Some stones are big, some are small, some are rough, some are smooth. They're cut from different quarries. The Lord takes every Christian. He cuts and he chisels and he polishes and he puts him or her exactly where he wants them to be in his temple. We are being fitted together. Every local church is this hodgepodge collection of people that would probably never all get together otherwise than the Holy Spirit has brought them together. God expertly fits each member so that the life of Jesus is manifest through us. Let that sink in. Those who compose a local church this local church are no accident. We are here by God's design. And this is why we never look down upon any brother or sister. If God has seen fit to put us together, then we are the ones, His church, that He intends to use. And if God sees fit to use the person sitting beside you, or in front of you, or three rows over, then who am I or who are you to question his decision? The wonder is, it is in this community that the living God has chosen to dwell. Think about that. Together, we're growing together into a holy temple in the Lord. God's design is that I grow spiritually and you grow spiritually in the context of community. But this is not just any community. This is a Holy Spirit-infused dwelling where God is with us and Jesus directs us. As we worship and pray together, as we encourage one another, as we hear the Word together, as we respond to it in our individual lives, the temple continues to grow. It's not complete. The Lord is still adding stones as people are added to his church. But through numerical growth from without and spiritual growth from within, verse 22, 
we are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We're being built together. Being built. The Lord is not finished. He's not done. We need to frequently gather in order for the Spirit of God to work freely among us and to work freely through us. Since the beginning of time, men and women, they have sought God. We no longer have to wonder where he resides. He dwells in the church, among his people. So let us never look down at any church, not even at ourselves. For the very Spirit of God, the very power of God is at work in our midst. We cannot walk in the will of God alone. You cannot walk in the will of God alone. I cannot walk in the will of God alone. By His design and by His decree, we need each other. We need each other. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the reminder of how precious and valuable the church, the local church, is to you and to your purposes. We want to be aligned with those purposes, Father. We just ask this morning that you would do a mighty work in our midst, that you would take this collection of people that you have seen fit to bring together, that you have infused with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would use us in mighty ways. May we be ready and willing for you to do that. Deepen our love for one another as you deepen our love for you. And we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.